Welcome to Generative Leaders, a series of conversations with leaders generating positive outcomes for society, the planet, and future generations. To inspire, challenge, and have fun with what's universally true of the human mind. I'm your host, Julia Rupholtz, and this week to help me, I'm in conversation with Lorna Davis. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because it's with a dear, dear friend of mine who I've actually never met in person. <laughs> but she's become such a great friend and uh, it really showed me how that can happen in a non-physical format. So Lorna, tell people who you are today. Isn't it interesting your point about us being so close and never having met? And it's making me think about how we make up so many stories about what knowing people requires. And one of the gifts of COVID, I think, has been we've unintentionally broken a lot of those assumptions that, that we had to actually physically meet people before we knew them. And it's simply not true since we're all <laughs> an invention anyway. <laughs> it's interesting that you asked me to explain who I am because I'm noticing that I'm in the place today of there's this great Joan Didion quote that says I've lost touch with a number of people that I used to be and when I look at my resume or my CV I think wow who is that person and yet a lot of what I've spent my time doing has informed the way that I look at the world in all sorts of interesting and useful ways, as long as, as well as I'm not very interesting and not very useful ways. So today it makes sense to me to say that I am a coach of people who come across my path who feel good to work with. I am a director of a couple of boards, B Corps. I'm passionate about business as a force for good, and I like working on businesses that are trying to do something new and interesting. I speak uh, to companies about the journey toward purpose, if you like. Some people find out about me from a TED talk I did a few years ago on collaborative leadership and while in some ways I look at that TED Talk and I think, hmm, wow, I know more about delegation than I do about collaboration. So that's been an interesting journey for me to notice how, uh, how full of shit I am. But I do speak to companies, like I've got a couple of speeches next week to talk to companies about how they might get on the journey. And the sort of, the things that I do aside from that, which are, those things are effectively revenue producing for me to, to pay my rent. But there are a couple of other things I do that actually cost me money. One of them is I'm totally passionate about rhinos, rhino conservation. And so I spend a lot of time trying to transform that system that causes so many rhinos to be slaughtered. And I am very interested in indigenous wisdom and what indigenous elders have to teach us in the Western world. Through these conversations, we've been exploring the question of business being a force for good. And you mentioned that you're really trying to get people on that journey. And it's, we talk about businesses as if they're an entity, but really they're groups of people that come together to do something. And so what do you see about people that are starting to go on the journey of using business as a force for good. And, and what does that look like to you? People are remarkable. We humans are remarkable. We are so wise given how the world looks to us. So we're wise within the context of what makes sense to us. And when people who are leading businesses, and given that I led businesses for more than 20 years, I'm particularly interested in people who lead businesses and big and powerful ones because they have the opportunity to make a difference. When people think that their business is a separate, little, isolated entity that doesn't have anything to do with anything else, that is captured in a 
P&L and a balance sheet and that the humans that work in it are called FTEs or full-time equivalents. And when they see the resources of the planet that they use to produce whatever they produce as lines on a P&L, they do a whole bunch of things that make sense to them in that context. And I understand it. I did it myself for many years. But when they see the truth, which is that they're not separate and we are not separate, that the financial results of a business are a tiny little slice of a made-up accounting system that says nothing about the actual health of the business, that the people who work in their organization are not FTEs, they're actual humans, that the resources that they have the privilege of using from the planet to convert into whatever goods and services they produce need to be replenished and regenerated in some way for us all to have a healthy future, they do different things because different things make sense to them. And so basically it's really simple. When you see things differently, you do things differently. And the thing that's amazing about humans, the thing that's wonderful about humans is that's all we are is we just create our world moment by moment by moment, depending on our thinking in the moment. And so when we see that as individuals, everything changes. So the reason that I am particularly focused on the individuals in businesses and particularly in big businesses is because that's where I have resonance. That's where I relate. And so when I'm speaking to somebody who is trying to see things in a new way, it's kind of helpful for me to have seen some similar things, but it's not a requirement. Well, I got goosebumps when you were just talking about that because it, it was so resonant with me about that moment that I had working in a corporate environment and just being hit round the face with what our company was doing to the planet. And I, I remember that moment so vividly. And it was like one moment the world looked one way and then the next moment the world looked completely differently. So it sounds like that happened to you <laughs> too. Do you remember it? No, I'm so intrigued that yours was an actual moment. And I, I want to know, can you tell me what happened in that moment? Yeah, I, I remember I was the head of strategy for a very large energy company. And uh, I was working in North America and was working on a sort of, you know, strategy piece around, you know, how, how could we get more customers into our books? And um, I remember looking at all of the data and just having this blinding insight was that, we were losing all these customers and then we were having to spend a load of money on getting new customers. And I was like, well, why don't we focus all of our time and attention on actually keeping the customers that we've already got? Wouldn't that be an interesting strategy? And why did we never think about this before? And then I started to look at all of the energy demand that our customers would have if we kept them all. And I realized that we had a huge, huge energy supply problem and that there wasn't going to be enough gas in the gas fields that we had access to. And then when I started to look into that, I realized there wasn't going to be enough gas for everyone, you know, not just our company, but everybody's company because the demand was just going through the roof. And then I started to look at how many years left did we have of gas as a human species? And it was about 60 years. And then I looked at, well, how many harvests do we have left? And it's about 60 now, and it was about 80 then. And I was like, holy fuck. We're on a trajectory to not be able to heat ourselves, cool ourselves, or feed ourselves. 
we got to do something dramatically different. And if we don't start now, we're going to run out of time. And it was, it was like being punched in the face. And it was a day. And it was a day. All of, the, all of what I just said to you happened. I, I started looking at the numbers, I think around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And by 4.30, I had that realization because my mind started to put dots together and I started to ask questions I'd never asked before. And that was the conclusion. And then it was a case of, well, who do you tell? And in what manner do you tell them? It's like that film, Don't Look Up. <laughs> yeah, having watched that film, it very much felt like that. So, so what, were the, what were the personal implications? I mean, when you saw that, did you think, well, what about me? What about my family? I mean, what, what about my job? Like, wh wh how, where were you in all of this? It was really interesting because I actually didn't feature. It sort of wasn't about me. It just was a realization that this was about the 7 billion other people that were on the planet. And as a company executive stewarding a very large organization that had responsibility for 30,000 people and touched the lives of 30 million people, we could help, we could do something, you know, what could we do? And then, and then it sort of, you know, it very quickly went from despair to, well, wow, this is a real opportunity for us to inspire and really make a difference. And we sort of pivoted to making our purpose about making a positive difference in people's lives. And that was sort of the journey. And then I, I decided that for me, it was important to, to take the rest of the company on that journey and sort of take on sustainable business with our CEO. So it was that series of conversations to sort of share with people, this is what I've realized. What are you seeing about that? What do you know about that? What do you realize about that? And um, I, I remember um, going and interviewing all of my board's children and having that idea to do that because it might help for them to see how things, how their children see them. It's a fabulous story and so different from mine because I think in retrospect, I was so unable to reimagine my own role in life that I batted away a lot of data, but it gradually, it was like a car getting clogged and clogged and clogged until eventually it just gives up. And for me, it was tiny things. And I can remember small things, but I can remember a few of them. One of them is, I was a similar calculation to yours. I was in China, I was living in Shanghai and I went to go on a road that I had gone on quite often before and the whole road had disappeared. Like sometimes in Shanghai, it felt like Martians came down overnight and just did stuff. It was so quick. And I saw that they had redirected the whole motorway in another direction, which was a huge infrastructure project that had happened in, in, in weeks. And I remember the calculation of a billion Chinese getting the cars that they needed, the number of cars per household and how many that would mean and how much highway people would need if that was going to happen. And I remember the calculation blowing my mind, but putting it away and carrying on with my day. So that was kind of the intellectual level, if you like. Then I remember my stepson who was living with us in Shanghai. And at that time I was working for Mondelez and I was committed to making Oreos the biggest cookie brand in China and was doing a good job, by the way, of converting people to Oreo land, including teaching people how to twist, lick and dunk. And my stepson, who was about 14, came to me and said, you know, I'm really ashamed of what you do for a living. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're just making Chinese people fat. And I remember being a smart ass and saying, well, listen, kids, it's, that's the money that's paying for your fancy school and your little scooter that you wanted and those really nice shoes you're wearing. Because I couldn't let that in, but it, it came in anyway. I couldn't let that in through my intellect, but it came in. 
And then another experience that comes to mind, I was visiting, I was now running the North American Dannon business. And I was uh, visiting one of our big dairy farms. And I was standing there with the farmer and uh, we were in the kind of nursery where the babies are, with cows give birth. And the cow gave birth and she licked the calf dry and then she walked away and the farmer said to me, yeah, this is an excellent cow. And I said, what makes her excellent? And he said, well, she cares enough to lick the cow dry, the baby dry, but she doesn't care enough to stay and complain when we take the baby away. And another part of me died. And so it was like there were these little parts of me that got killed off until at some point I just sort of slid to my knees. I didn't fall to my knees on a Wednesday afternoon like you did. I just slowly slid to my knees uh, to where I am right now. And I think what's important about the contrast in our two stories is I think it comes to us differently depending on where we are. And I was just so invested in my sort of status and social position and practical financial position and so on that I just didn't want to let that stuff in. And now, I mean, I let all of that in and it breaks my heart each time. Each of those facts break my heart a little bit more. And um, I think getting our hearts broken is the only appropriate thing. <laughs> it's like our good friend Lorna um, Japri says, it's almost like you've got to burn down all of those heartbreaks in order to, to see something new. And I do think that all of our hearts break at slightly different places. And I'm, I must say, I must give credit to Glenna Doyle for this sort of notion, because she's the one who talks about acting where your heart breaks. So for some of us, it's the environment. For some of us, it's animal welfare. For some of us, it's child slavery. And for all of us, there are many things that happen in the world that are worthy of heartbreak, but they happen to not break our particular heart for whatever reason. And I think that's a really great kind of guide. So for example, rhinos, I was at a dinner a couple of weeks back and I said something about rhinos and a woman said, but isn't it too late? I mean, they're all gone anyway. And I tell you, I wanted to punch her, man. I don't know how I stopped myself from, because simultaneously my heart was breaking and I was so angry that she had given up. And of course, there was enough about that statement that was sort of borderline true, that it really hurt me. And I am not giving up. And I accept that almost all of the people listening to this podcast are going to be saying rhinos. Why rhinos? Well, I don't know. I don't have to explain myself to anybody. They're my being. They're my species. And we all need to be acting wherever our particular place is, the, the place that fuels us, that nourishes us, that warms us, intrigues us, inspires us, whatever. I love what you're saying, because it's recognizing that we're all unique. You know, we're having a unique experience of life. And whatever insight and realization we've had that's brought us to wherever we are, it's intelligent, right? It's intelligent and it's having us act and lead and point in a space that most brings out our own unique capacities. And I think what's really powerful about the point you make and the point about intelligence is that there's this beautiful dance between the fact all of us are made exactly the same way. The way that humans work is the same. That we create our experience in the moment through our thinking that we live inside of and that we are all part of this extraordinary universal intelligence that's holding this whole system together. This is part of why you and I can be in love with each other and never have actually seen each other. So this is how we're all, I mean, in real life. So, so this is true for all of us. And so it's actually 
impersonal, structurally impersonal. But the way that it shows up is deeply, profoundly personal in each of us. And so as we kind of go backwards and forwards, what I notice is the power of like really experiencing. I mean, I can't talk about rhinos without crying. This is me, human, Lorna, in this body right now. That particular experience brings me to tears. And I am fully aware of the fact that it is my thought in the moment that's creating that experience for me and that your thought in the moment is creating your experience. And I can hold both of those. I know both of those things are true. And so it allows me to be fully in all of it. Sometimes understanding the miracle of the design and other times weeping into my pillow about rhinos fully. So yeah, it's amazing, amazing thing this. Yeah, it is, it is an amazing thing. And I, you know, I'd love for the rest of our conversation to sort of focus on that because I think, you know, we both come to the realization as coaches, as leaders, that if things are really going to change, it's people having those insights and those realizations and understanding that dance between the way all human beings work and our personal experience. To me, it looks like the key. But I'd love to hear your take on that. Like, how does really understanding how humans work, how the mind works universally for people is so important to regenerating what needs to happen in this world for humans to continue to thrive? Well, you know, understanding how we are made changes everything because it gives us freedom at the personal level that I don't think is available to us if we don't understand how it's made because we get so caught up in our thinking in the moment that we think that that's real and that we're effectively trapped inside that thinking. So I'll give you an example because at a conceptual level, this is very quickly people phase out. So I went for my annual mammogram this week, earlier this week. Now, all of the women on, everybody knows that's what people are supposed to do. And every year I go along and, and every year I have thinking about that. I have practical thinking about that as in, I don't really like the process. I don't like what happens when you have a mammogram. I feel uncomfortable and it's not really fun. And every year I have some thinking that this might be the year that they find something. And I have a lot of information that would reinforce the points, the statistics and all of the stories. But I know that that's how we work. So the thing comes up in my schedule, I plan it. The thought occurs to me, oh God, I'm gonna have to go and get squashed into that machine. And I think, ah, I don't need to think about that for one more time because it's going to happen, but it's not happening now. It's going to happen when I get to that place. And when I get to that place, it's going to take five minutes and then it's going to be done. And so that frees, that freed up my thinking to do other things. And then the day occurred, I went, I did the thing. And then as I walked out, the thought occurred to me, maybe this is the time they'll catch some, they'll find something. And I thought, yes, because this is how it works. That thought is going to cross my mind. There is nothing to be done. They will send me an email and either they will have found something or they will not, but there's nothing to be done because that email has not yet come. And so then I was free to go about my day. Now there was a time when I didn't know that that's how it worked. And so I would have thought about discomfort for over and 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 over in the lead up. And then I would have thought about all the ghastly scenarios that could have happened over and over and over and over and over in the, in the aftermath. By the way, I'm clear again. But when I think about the extra capacity that I have had to dedicate to the people and the causes that I love in my life this week, because I didn't spend all that time thinking about imaginary scenarios, I think that's pretty damn cool. And freeing. 
Completely. So it's the understanding that that's how we work that allows that new freedom of intervention in that thinking. And, that. and of course, in some cases, it works the same, in some cases different, in some cases we get caught for a lot longer, in some cases get caught for shorter. But I know even in the depths of a bad feeling that it'll pass. And I didn't know that before. And so because of that, I can fully give myself to whatever it is that occurs to me, including the weeping, the anger, all of the things that we experience. You know, there was a time when I wouldn't cry because I was afraid that I would cry for the rest of my life if I started. Well, I know that now that even if I try my hardest, I can't cry longer than five or 10 minutes. It kind of gets boring and it's sort of, I run out of tears and the thoughts passed. But sometimes those five or 10 minutes are very, very, very intense and they have their own beauty. And so the understanding of that changes everything. It changes the speed with which we react to things. Just before this conversation, you and I had a conversation that I was destabilized by. And I said to you, oh, man, I, got, I, made, I had a lot of thinking about this conversation we just had, and I'm a bit off balance. I thought, oh, and I had a slightly tense feeling in my tummy. It occurred to me to tell you that that was what, was think, what I was thinking. It occurred to me to take a couple of deep breaths, and here I am, fresh. Now, there was a time when I wouldn't have recognized that that was thinking. I would have thought it was you. I would have made up even more stories about what you said versus what I said. Then I would have made up stories about how I reacted, what I thought you said, and then I would have been off. Now it's like it passes like this. So I guess freedom is the best way to describe it for me. Freedom in the moment and, and creativity that comes out of that freedom. Creativity to solve the problems that face us today, the real things that we want to be up to rather than me spending the whole week worrying about a possible mammogram result, I've been able to do a bunch of other really interesting things this week. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you have a new client that comes to you and says, yeah, Lorna, I've started to have these thoughts that maybe the world isn't kind of going in the right direction. You know, I'm hearing on the news that climate change is now a real thing that we kind of need to pay attention to and that people are going to be displaced by this climate change there's not enough water there's maybe not going to be enough food there's all these things and I and I'm worried but I also am wondering how do I help people in my organization see that how do I start to maybe think about the organization in a different way how would you coach someone through that that happens to me a lot, actually. <laughs> well, well, I know it does. And, and I know that you and I have talked about it a lot together. So um, it's, it's really great to hear because I'm, I'm guessing that lots of people who are listening are, they're up against this. So, I, I mean, I think we start with, I'm always starting with the human that's in front of me, right? This person. And my first question always is, does this person know where her experience comes from? How does she think she is experiencing the world? And much of the time, people think that their experience is either coming from the outside, like real things, the world, you, me, my boss, whatever, my husband, my kids, whatever, or their own broken thinking, their own kind of conditioning. So uh, uh, let me explain that another way. What I've noticed a pattern in some of my clients, is, and it's certainly been true for me, is once it dawns on us that the, our experience is not coming from the outside because there's enough variability in that experience and there's enough, we've become aware of the fact that we can't control the outside. And sometimes we get the thing we thought we wanted and then we didn't feel the way we thought we would feel. So the outside starts to look a bit, we get suspicious. So often the second place people go is their own makeup. So they say things like, well, I must have been broken somewhere. I'm, something must have gone wrong with me before, before that I've got to go back and fix. I've got to kind of go and have therapy and discuss my relationship with my mother and all that. And 
while there's lots of useful things to, to see about our conditioning, we are magnificent and perfect, like right now. So I'm interested to see how people see their life, how they see their experience. And if it occurs to me that they think it's either outside or in their past, we spend a lot of time working out, discussing how we really do create our experience. So that's kind of our first place to go. Once we really see how humans create their experience, and once we have some of this freedom that I was talking about before, it's remarkable how much new thought, fresh thinking, new creativity has space now. Because now we're not in trying to fix an apparent problem from the outside. We're not trying to fix an apparent problem from our past. We're now genuinely curious about this moment and what might be available to us in this moment. And once we're in that place, I mean, I just finished with a client. So this particular client started off with an intention of a particular kind of company that she wanted to run and got sidetracked servicing a client that didn't, wasn't consistent with what she was trying to achieve. And so it occurred to her that this didn't make sense anymore. And so she actually fired that client and halved the size of her business and reoriented it in the direction that she wants to go in. And today's conversation was, how am I going to create my new job now? Like, where am I going to spend my time? And it was a beautiful, creative, thoughtful, generative conversation about how she spends her time. And that's available to her because she understands how much freedom she has, which she didn't understand when she thought she was trapped in needing to pay the bills with a client that didn't meet her needs. So what I notice is that once people really, really see how we're made, it's just one creative solution after the other that comes their way. And, I, you know, we can't predict what that's going to be in any one particular comp company, in any, in any one particular situation, because it happens, the wisdom happens in real time. And so, you know, kind of using maybe some slightly different words, but what I'm hear you, hearing you say is that when leaders get caught up in a whole bunch of thinking that's either to do with them or to do with things that the company has to, has to do or should do or must do, that it limits the amount of intelligence that's available to that particular leader or group of leaders and that by recognizing that and seeing that because it's so insidious you know we just don't it's like we don't see all of the limits that we put inside ourselves like the company has to make a certain profit level or you know or it has to be seen a, a certain way or it has to do a certain thing or it, that actually that kind of like it makes everybody stupid yeah, I mean, that's one way of saying it. I, it. The way it looks to me is it clogs the pipe, you know. So it's like like if a pipe is clogged, there's, not, there's almost no space for anything to come through. And so I think we start to get a feel for it. There are certain areas of our businesses that feel free. The water of creativity is flowing smoothly and it's easy and there's new things happening and people are enjoying their work and things are going well. And then there are other areas where it just feels like, oh my gosh, this is just not working. And all that's telling you is that there's some unrecognized thinking that's blocking the pipe. As you say, there's some limits that we put on ourselves. There's some invisible jails that we're sitting inside of. And you don't need to go looking for them. Just noticing that sort of soggy feeling, that heavy feeling is an indication of some unhelpful thinking, it unblocks by itself a lot of the time. Uh, it's remarkable, really, you know. So in that situation, leaders being able to spot the areas of their businesses where things are 
not flowing, not creative, feel heavy, feel difficult. I mean, all businesses have dashboards, don't they? You and I had KPI dashboards coming out of our ears. <laughs> but for me, what I'm noticing now is that, you know, as a leader, having that feeling dashboard, you know, always kind of going through each area of the business and saying, well, how does this feel? really gives you an indication of what's flowing, what's not flowing. And if it's not flowing, as you said, it's the, what are all the things that we're thinking that might be blocking the pipe of, of intelligent, creative access? And what's it's so interesting that you say this, Julia, because this morning I was being briefed on a sort of presentation that I need to give to a board of a big company next week. And the person doing the briefing was explaining the situation of the company and I was listening to the words, but I could feel that I wasn't, like there was a sort of an unease in me as I was listening to her. And I realized that there was something that she wasn't saying. It's like occurred, the thought occurred to me, there is something that she's not saying. And as soon as that thought occurred to me, it occurred to me to sort of start to look at that. Like, look there, what is she not saying? Not what is she saying, what's she not saying? And then it occurred to me, like a question came out of my mouth about the secrets that this company is keeping, that they are determined to keep a particular piece of information not public. And then, and I, actually in reflection, now that I'm saying it, at the very beginning, she made a big deal out of that she had special permission to tell me something. So then I said to her, it occurred to me, and this is important to say, it occurred to me because the pipe unblocked at that moment. I felt the discomfort. I noticed the discomfort. The thought occurred to me, there's something she's not saying. And then it's like a gush of new thinking came to me. And I said, what would they do if everybody knew this fact? And everything in the conversation changed because she could see that was, the, that was a really important question. <laughs> and she and I could also see that it wasn't going to take long for other people to know this fact. And so that's kind of how I'm noticing it works a lot, that if there's a feeling, once the feeling is acknowledged that there's something that's not flowing well, then the, uh, the blockage unblocks itself. Now I'm really curious about the conversation that we're going to have next week because that actually is going to be the foundation of that conversation with that board is let's assume that everybody knows this one fact that you've been trying to hide. And it's such fun, right? The thing goes from, oh my God, this is a secret we've got to keep to. Now what? And in that expansiveness, solutions occur. New ideas come. And it's what you're sharing is, is so deeply practical in being able to attend to all the things we need to attend to. Because sometimes people can feel like I've got to deal with this and I've got this and I've got this and I've got the other. And then there's that overwhelming feeling. And I love what you're saying because it's like that overwhelming feeling is a moment to just see all of this thinking that you are creating in this moment. Yeah, I mean, overwhelming is a great dashboard light. I get overwhelmed. I mean, I now like overwhelm because that's like, but I, it just means that I've got like some major thinking about it. But what I have noticed because of how we're made, because, I mean, it's such a, genius design this thing called being human is that I used to think overwhelming was just well that's how life was I was always overwhelmed and I had to kind of fight through it all then I started to get this understanding and I was like oh okay overwhelmed means that I've got a lot of thinking about something and then I kind of in a way I mean, I couldn't help myself. I then tried to go after what that thinking was. Like, what is it that's making me overwhelmed? And then that would make me even more overwhelmed because now I've like laid another job on my, my little personal self, right? Now I go, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, back off. 
wisdom needs some space to sort this out and then do something else or something. I don't know. It depends. But oftentimes it's just like, like, don't make any big decisions on this one. Don't make any decisions at all on this one because I'm overwhelmed. And then something new occurs to me. And then off I go, you know, with a different feeling. And would you say that if we come back again to kind of business leaders who are trying to make decisions about things that are a long way in the future, what does that look like to you now? Like, you know, if you could imagine yourself being back in the place of business leader, kind of having to make decisions on things, what would you advise people? Well, I wouldn't advise them. I would just remind them that that this sort of dance between the long term and the short term is what humans do and have always done. You know, one of the reasons I love business is that business people are constantly thinking about the short term and the long term and sort of, I I use the word dance rather than navigate because that's kind of how it feels to me. But I also use parenting as a metaphor a lot, even though I'm not a parent, because most of the adults that I deal with are parents. And parenting is the ultimate long-term, short-term dance. Every parent is constantly going, you know, should I, you know, let him go out with his friends tonight or should I make him study because of the long-term, short-term thing? I mean, that's, and it's not a perfect science because we're not supposed to be perfect scientists, we're humans. And so we go day by day, moment by moment, issue by issue. So I would remind, I remind people that's who we are. We're made for this. So, so chill, that's one thing. The second thing I, I notice a lot as I'm speaking about it is one of the big illusions in business I think is about time. So we'll do stuff like we'll write this strategic plan, three year, five year, 10 year, 30 year, doesn't really matter. And then we have this illusion that that's done now. And well, I mean, first of all, I've got to get it right, whatever right is. And then I'm putting that away forever. Well, until next year, all of that's made up, really. I mean, there are sometimes you have to have uh, decisions about investments or commitments. Resource allocation is really what causes us to make decisions for the future. But we shift those much more frequently than we think we do. So we will deploy an asset or we will buy a piece of capital or we will invest in something or the other. And oftentimes it gets repurposed or shifted or we change our minds or whatever. And it's not nearly as heavy a decision as we think it is and so I think it's quite useful to point that out because we make these things called businesses so real don't we hilarious and yeah and it's like the world's changing all the time we're getting new information new data we're starting to see things differently and we have to adjust and change as our thinking evolves and changes which it inevitably will do It's one of the reasons, Julia, why when I'm talking with businesses about how to change or how to shift, is I almost always encourage people to get allies upstream and downstream. Because the reality is that anybody, like if anybody is listening to this podcast and they currently make some sort of widget, they sell that thing to somebody. They buy the components or whatever. And this is true for services as well, right? They buy the ingredients of the, this thing. They convert this, the ingredients into something and they sell it to somebody else. I can tell you that if your customer stopped buying them from you, you would have a remarkable amount of creativity in pivoting because that's what you're made for. You would like, oh my gosh, my customer doesn't want my thing anymore. Well, then what else can I make? And I've been in the situation on the subject of capital. I used to be in the biscuit business for a long time. I was in the situation where I had factories that had been built in the late 1900s, in the late 1800s, and people didn't want the stuff that those machines had been made to produce. Oh, it's remarkable how much you can 
modify and shift and add this piece of equipment to that piece of equipment to make a thing because a customer actually wants it. So focusing on what your customer wants and getting your customer to be your ally is a really useful way of shifting your organization because companies are used to to being customer focused. And the same is true of suppliers. You know, if suddenly a major ingredient of your good and service was not available anymore, well, you'd go looking for other alternatives because you're a practical and innovative business person. So in those conversations with the customers and the suppliers, in service of whatever new direction you want to go in, the options are amazing, amazing that what comes out of it. And I tell you, in my time in business, I can tell I'm getting really excited about this. In my time in business, those were the days when we used to go out with people. You know, we used to go to events and dinners and stuff. Remember those? And I would meet a supplier at an event or something. And they would say to me, you guys really break our hearts. Well, they wouldn't say this in these words. They were big, blokey blokes normally. They would say, you're basically not using all of who we are. Your purchasing people come to us and they say, can we have a X spec thingy? How much is it going to cost to buy a million thingies? And we meet that need because that's what you ask us. But actually, we've got all sorts of R&D people and we're doing all sorts of things and we could really help you if you'd let us. It's true of everybody listening to this thing. They've got suppliers who are saying, pick me. I'll help you to reinvent your business. Just ask. So getting allies around you help you because you asked me a question about the long term. And those people will help you to get a perspective on the short term and the long term. And they will help you to pivot in ways that you never imagined. Which is sort of brings us to the conclusion of the conversation here. And that's what all regeneration is about, is finding new and innovative ways to use what we have in a different way. Reimagining that, reinventing it. Yeah. And seeing it coming back to the very beginning of the conversation, just as I am not a chopped up separate entity from you and a business is not a chopped up separate entity from the rest of the world. Nothing is separate and chopped up, nothing. And so it's actually, it's about seeing that's the illusion. It's about not making up stuff because underneath it all, we know we're all joined. Anybody who, any human who has looked into a baby's eyes, picked a flower, eaten an apple, made love, danced, knows that we're not separate. And so it's really just seeing the illusion for what it is and laughing because you'll get caught again and again because we all do. Well, Lorna, I know you and I could talk for hours because we have. (laughs) And I know that we'll continue to do so. So, you know, this probably is not the only time that you and I will talk on this podcast. There's going to be many, many more opportunities to do so. But it's been an absolute pleasure today. How can people get hold of you or chat more if they love what they've heard from you today? Well, probably the easiest thing is to contact me on LinkedIn because that's kind of, I'm there. I look at it. I'll, I accept most people if they, if their invitation comes to me, um, or you can go on my website, which is lornadavis.net. And I would be really happy to engage with anybody on any subject. Oh, I just adore my conversations with Lorna. We have conversations like this all the time. And uh, this is the first one that we have recorded and shared with other people. So what did you take from this conversation? If you've enjoyed it, share it with someone who needs to hear it. You can do that by going to generativeleaders.co. Things that have really stayed with me since that conversation is how much fun it can be solving problems. We can have this moment of feeling like a problem is really heavy and that it's difficult and challenging and 
something really heavy in our lives. Or we can have this moment where it's really fun and we get to have fun with a lot of other people, exchanging ideas, seeing what makes sense, coming up with new ideas. And it's the human mind that does this. It's the capacity that we all have to come up with new ideas all the time. And it's really interesting in business that sometimes we can just point our minds in that direction. We can wonder and get curious and have a lot of fun doing it, or we can get really serious and really tight. And I wonder if you reflect on times when you've been your most creative, most innovative, what was it like for you? Was it fun or was it heavy and challenging? The other thing that I really took away from the conversation with Lorna is that change really comes from insight. For any human being or a business to change anything, we have to have a new thought. We have to have a new idea. Otherwise, everything stays the same. And we're all having new thoughts all the time. We're like this living process, which is changing because our thoughts are changing all the time. And sometimes it can be a series of slow moments of little insights and little changes that then turn into this realization that you've changed. Like Lorna was sharing about, you know, those moments where her stepson said to her, you know, Oreos for people in China, is that really a good thing to be doing? And it sort of shook up the way that Lorna thought about things. But things didn't really change until later. Whereas for me, it was, you know, an afternoon of my brain kind of rewiring and then having this big aha moment. But it's not always like that for me. Sometimes it's a lot of very small changes, a lot of different ways of thinking. So what's it like for you? What do you notice about how change happens for you? I wonder if you started to notice and get curious about that, what you would see. Well, we'll be exploring this more in our next conversation of Generative Leaders. I look forward to seeing you there.